Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 7. We're continuing in our study of who Jesus is. That's the general category, really, we've been looking at for most of the year. And we've looked at different aspects of that. We're really focused on Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus asked this question, Who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're the great prophet. And he said, but who do you say that I am? And that's the question that we all have to answer. And that, that revelation, that knowledge should be growing. Just as who my wife was to me 44 years ago when we got married, she's not who that is, she is to me since then for two reasons. First of all, she's grown and changed and matured and grown into all kinds of areas. And so there's more of her to know in, in that sense. On the other sense, is just well, the more you're with somebody, the more of that you can come to know. And so that's, it's true of God also. It's true of the Lord. So we're growing in our knowledge of Him. But, but there's a key verse in there where Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Flesh and blood did not figure that out, but my Father who is in heaven revealed that to you. And so what we've seen is that's God's answer to that question of who Jesus is. We saw the first thing that He says He's the Christ, the Anointed One. He is the, he is the one God has chosen. But the thing we spend most of our time on is the second part of that. He is the Son of God. And what does that mean to us? We've looked at three things. First thing we've looked at is what it means is, first of all, is that it's a measure of how much God loves us. That God gave His Son for you. He gave His own Son, His beloved Son. And we know He loved Him because at least twice in the Bible He said that from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. He gave His beloved Son's life in place of your life so that He could have you. That's a measure of God's love for you. Then we looked at what does it mean we saw in John chapter 1 where it says He is the Word. He is the second person of the Godhead. He is God. And verse 14 says and that Word, that second person of the Godhead became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw what that means is that God became concrete, tangible in Christ. Because before that and apart from Christ you can have your own idea of what God is like. And that's what the world does. People, you know, you've, you've got all kinds of religions that are trying to come up with their idea of what God is. You even have many different Christians, even within this room this morning. There are many of you have a different idea, each of us a different idea of what God is like. And because God, in that sense, is so general, your God and my God can get along fine. Your God doesn't bump into my God. Your idea of what God is like doesn't bother me. You know, and that's where, you know, we're tolerance. There's these bumper stickers that say coexist. That's fine to coexist. <laughs> but 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 if 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 there's a truth and there's error, that's they don't coexist too well together. Life and death don't coexist. Darkness and light don't coexist. And so so what happens is as long as God is just some general concept, we can all exist together because your idea of God and my idea of God aren't the same, but that's okay. We can kind of fit them together. But when God became a man and became concrete and tangible, now He became specific and now we know what God's like. And so now the issue is what do we do with that? See, Jesus confronts people just by who He is. That's why He's referred to as the stumbling block. Because he's the rock of offense. He's the rock that people st- either, either build their life on or fall on and break apart. He is the, when God becomes specific and concrete, now people have a choice to make. What do we do with him? 
And that's why he's the issue. As we've shared before many times, you can talk to your neighbors or friends or relatives over the Thanksgiving table about God and they'll talk about God, but the moment you mention Jesus, everything changes. You can mention Buddha, nothing changes. You can mention Mohammed, people might look at you funny, but nothing changes. But when you mention Jesus, something happens. Why? Because he is God in the flesh. And so what you do with Jesus is what you do with God. The third aspect is what we've been spending time on. What does it mean that God came in the flesh, that God sent his son? Jesus said, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. I only do what I see my Father doing. I only say what I hear my Father saying. Jesus said, the Bible says that that he is God in the flesh. And therefore, if you want to know what God is like, we can look at Jesus and see what God is like. And the aspect that we've been looking at specifically is that Jesus didn't draw limitations. We looked in different areas. We looked in areas such as healing, God meeting people's needs. Because the question is always, I don't know whether God will or not. You know, it's like the the, the leper that came to Jesus in in Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. He says, you know, I know you can heal me, I just don't know if you're willing to. And Jesus, before anything else, said, I will, I'm willing. And we went through and we looked before and we saw that Jesus never refused anybody. There's one woman he gave an answer to that could be interpreted that way, a woman from Syrophoenicia. He said, I, don't, you know, I didn't come to take care of the dogs, referring to the non-Jews. And she said, well, at least the dogs yet to eat the crumbs under the table. And he smiled and he said, woman, your faith is great. He was challenging her faith. And then he healed her daughter. Yes, so God never, Jesus never said no to anybody. Second thing we saw is he didn't put limits on what they could believe for. Because what religion will tell you, you know, you don't, you don't want to believe, you know, you don't want to expect too much. You know, you go into a hospital room and somebody's got tubes all out of them and you want to pray for them and they say, well, no, no, don't give them, don't give them false hope. My goodness, if there's anything they need, it's hope. <laughs> And, 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 and we, well, you know, we don't, God wouldn't do that. You don't want to ask too much. But you go, I've gone through my God, the Gospels, and I don't find anywhere where Jesus corrects somebody for asking for too much, for believing for too much. In fact, I find just the opposite. I find him getting upset as disciples because they had an opportunity to believe for more, and they chose not to. And he said, O oh, ye of too much faith, why do you believe too much? No, he doesn't say that, does he? You know, oh, you have too much faith. Does he? No. But that's what religion teaches us. Oh, you don't want to presume on God. It's like God is this un, uh, difficult to understand, great giant in the sky. And, and, and he is in a sense. And, and we can't ever understand him or know him. And you don't know what he's going to do. See, that creates distance, a lack of intimacy, a lack of trust. That's right. yeah, go ahead. It also creates excuses it sure does. <laughs> for not doing anything for him. But Jesus didn't act that way with his disciples, the ones he was training. No, what he said is, O ye of little faith, why did you doubt? And I don't believe he just said it, O you of little faith, why? He said, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? I believe he couldn't understand unbelief. Why? Because he knew his father perfectly. 
He knew what his father was like. He knew the generous heart of his father. And that's what we're looking at. We're looking at God's heart, God's nature. And we went back and we then looked in, 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 the, in the beginning, in the book of Genesis, and so when God created everything, what did he do? Did he create it small? Did he create it limited? No, it was good. Everything he created was good. And then he created his crowning achievement, his man. And then he, he made him into a man and a woman together. And then he created this out of the good place that he built. He created a, an especially wonderful place called Eden, a place of delight. Filled it with all manner of delicious foods and, and, and good things to enjoy. And one translation says he commanded them to enjoy it. Now that doesn't fit into the image of God I was taught in Sunday school. He commanded them to enjoy this place. He just put one limitation on them. There was one tree they couldn't eat of. And of course, we know the story in chapter 3. The serpent comes in and, and he, he gets them into, leads them into disobedience and then God has to put limits on them. In fact, God has to kick them out of the garden, but he does it for their protection because still in that garden is the tree of eternal life. And if they ate of the tree of eternal life with sin, then they could never have had their sin atoned for. And just follow me in this. Because the, the Bible's principle of heaven is that the wages of sin is what? Death. death. You got that one down, don't you? <laughs> the wages of sin is death. Therefore, in order for somebody to atone for you, they have to be able to die in your place. That's right. Come on. But if you couldn't die, they couldn't have died for you. So we, Adam and mankind would have been eternally lost. So God had to create a barrier for them so they couldn't go further into that garden and eat of the tree of, of life and live forever separated from Him. That's a little sidetrack. And then we looked in the Old Testament. We saw how God dealt with Moses, how God dealt with Abraham, and we saw God was expanding their vision, not putting limits on them. He was trying to bless them, increase them. And then we went through David last week and Solomon and we saw those scriptures and I don't want to go back and spend the time on those. Then we ended, I think first service, we ended with you with, with in Matthew chapter 6, we saw Jesus trying to teach. This is Jesus now because it's in red letters in my Bible. Jesus trying to teach them not to worry because when you worry, what you're doing is you're putting the things of this world in a place in your heart above God. You're putting the things of this life, let's say, but I need them. He knows you need them. In fact, he goes on and says, if you'll seek first the kingdom of God, and if you put me first, all these things you need will be added unto you. But God just wants to be first in your life, because when he's first, he can bring into your life his blessings and his, his bounty. And so we saw Jesus, in order to teach that, used examples that they could relate to. He says, just look around you. Look at nature. He said, look at, the, look at the birds of the air. They don't walk around, fly around worrying about what they're going to eat. They're not wringing their wings together and you know, wiping their brow with their wings. Because your Heavenly Father feeds them daily. How much more valuable are you to Him than the birds? 
And he says, the lilies of the field that grow up today, and there's beautiful, you know, the different seasons that we have, especially here in New England, where we have beautiful springtime, and you see the flowers budding and coming out, and now this time of year, although this fall hasn't been the greatest, you see the beautiful foliage that people come from all parts of the country here to view, and, 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 and it's, then it's gone. And Jesus said, if God so arrays the lilies of the field with such beauty that are here today and gone tomorrow, how much more will he not also take care of you and provide for you? How much more? So what we're learning about God is he is the much more God. Because that's what the Bible teaches us. He's much more. But we, through our religious training and through our own self-image, take these scriptures and we, we turn them around to think of him as much less. I don't want to ask for too much. I don't want to expect too much. I don't want to hope for too much because God is the God who gives you the least he can get away with. It's as if God's up there and says, I'll take care of you, but I got this eyedropper. I got this eyedropper of grace and blessing and provision. And so let me see. Joe, let's see what you need. Just, ah, that's so much. I want too much now. I'll have to shake it off over here because we don't want him, we don't want to go into his head and you know, it's like, and that's the image we get of God. So listen to your own prayers. One of the best ways to know how what you think God is like is to listen to yourself. Talk to Him. Do you give Him all kinds of reasons why He ought to answer your prayers? That means you don't have confidence He's going to ask answer just because you ask. Now, did you find Matthew 7 yet? All right. Matthew chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 7. Starts out with the word, ask. Ask and it will be given to you. Remember, looking at God's nature here, as revealed by Jesus. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now, wait, 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 wait. That's awful open-ended. There's just something in our mind goes, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. It can't be that true. Well, there, there are some conditions that aren't here. You'll see those in James chapter 1, which is you have to believe. But there's not limitations in here. Well, only certain people can ask. It's only pastors that can ask. So we get so excited when I see the children praying and God answering their prayers. Why should it shock us? Because they're, they're just open enough to ask. They ask and actually expect God's going to hear them. And God's going to answer them. Because they believe. That's why Jesus told us that we must become like a child. Not childish, but childlike in our belief. Childlike in our openness. Childlike in our, in our, in our, in our trust in Him. So He says these amazing things. Ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock on the door. But you'll... Everyone that asks, receives. As again... You've got to ask in faith. It's got to be within the scope of God's will, but God's will sitting in your lap. You can know God's will. It's sitting in your lap. You just have to work at it. We don't like that. <laughs> and so, but within that, it says, whoever, whoever you asks. That's all pretty open-ended. So in here, he's 
limiting. He's telling us who, the, who, who qualifies. It's whoever asks. So I don't care who you are, what you've done. He's calling, he's inviting you to come and ask him. And as I said earlier, in James chapter 4, he says, you have not because you ask not. Okay, well, let's go on. Because we're looking at God's nature, his character, his heart. And now look at this. This is so important. Verse 9. What man among you? So here's what God, here's what Jesus does. In order to teach us what his father's like, he compares his father to a good father on earth, a human father. He's, he's taking things we know by experience. Oh, this is good. So often, what we do when, is, is we come to church and we come spiritually dyslexic. <laughs> we turn things around in our mind. Things which out in the life, normal life, we know is good. We come to the church and we begin, well, I don't know if that's good or not. Maybe God's good to God is the opposite. So we think in church that it's good if you're suffering because somehow we're getting something out of that. So that's good when it comes to God. But you try to, you'll spend all kinds of your income trying to get out from underneath the suffering once you get outside the door. So somehow inside a church it's good, but outside a church we know it's not. Not only that, if you then take what we're attributing to God as good and one of us does it to our kids... They get arrested. So why is it good when God does it, but not good when we do it? And here Jesus is showing us, he's, he's saying, He's using what we think is good in our human interactions and saying God is much better. Not much worse, much better. So that's the comparison He's making here. What man among you? So he's going to try to teach them something about God's nature and character by looking at how we are, some relationships that we understand. What man among you, if his son asks? So we're talking about a, a natural father, human father and a human son. What father among you, in other words, if his son asks him for bread, is going to give him stone? Or if his, he asks his father for a fish, is he's going to give him a serpent. In other words, either fool him or disappoint him. This is profound. Jesus is talking about our relationship with our Heavenly Father and, and a relationship is developed by communication. It's developed by asking. Your children ever ask you for anything? <laughs> Our grandkids came into our house the other day and my wife's already starting to wrap presents so they see wrapping paper around. And our granddaughter's eyes start to sparkle. Is that for me? Is that for me? Is that for me? Is that for me? They're not shy. Our grandson's birthday was last month and we were watching him for a day or so and he's, he, says, he says, let's go in that store over there. It was, it was one of these high, high-end toy stores. And he brings, he's, Papa, Papa, come here. My birthday's coming. That's what I want. <laughs> now, listen. 
Why did he do that? Because of his confidence in his papa. He knows his papa, he knows his grandma's heart. So he's bold to come and ask. So we got him two. (laughs) We couldn't find the one, so we got him two bigger ones. Much more. Much more. Much more. I didn't even go find out what it cost at first. I did find out later. But it's his, he knows us. He knows our heart and our character, our heart and our nature, especially towards him. So he's, and this is what Jesus is inviting them. He's teaching them what their God, their Father, is like. He's saying, come and ask. Ask, and you'll receive. He says, and when you ask, expect what you're going to get, because this is what he's like. You, a good father, if your son comes and asks you for a loaf of bread, something that you need, are you going to give him a stone? Are you going to fool him? Are you going to disappoint him? No. If he asked you for a fish, are you going to give him a snake? Now look at what he says. So he's get there. They understand that principle. They understand that relationship. They understand that message. And now he takes that to now take from that and build on that to teach them what their heavenly Father is like. Verse 11. If you then being evil, what he means is, compared to God, you're evil. You're not as good as God. I would hope you, will you admit that you're not as good a father as God is? I tried to be the best father I could. I know there are areas where I failed. But even if I was the best father, I still fall short of what God is like as a father. So that's what he means by evil. If you being evil know how to give, look at this, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? How much more? It's as if we think we're better than God. We're more generous than God is. What we're really looking at about God is He has a generous heart. God's heart is a heart of generosity, of blessing, of life, of wholeness, of completeness. We're learning on Wednesday night as we're studying peace that the word peace in the Old Testament is shalom. It means wholeness. Not just all pieces there, but also integrated together in the right spot. God's nature is wholeness. His nature is to bless. His nature is to be generous, not hold back. And this is what Jesus is communicating about. If you, with all your weaknesses and frailties as a father, still know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more. Look at this. How much 
more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. This is the law and the prophets. Let's go over now to, Matthew, uh, to Romans 5 and look at an example of this. He's the much more God. This is so rich in here. Romans is so rich. Start in verse 6. For when we were still without strength, there's a comparison here, in due time or at an appointed time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than. So he's starting as the foundation here that God loved you before you were ever born. And he demonstrated, he proved, he acted out his love for you in that while you were still a sinner, Before you ever came to Him, while the Bible says you were hostile to Him, He gave His Son's life in your place. So God demonstrated His life, love first by acting first, by paying for your soul first. And that's where so many Christians are. But He didn't stop there. Verse 9. Much more than, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. The word saved there means more than just going to heaven. It means wholeness. It's a word in the New Testament, sozio, which means wholeness, the way shalom means wholeness in the Old Testament. Spiritual wholeness, physical wholeness, emotional wholeness. How much more shall we be saved in this life? God's vision for you is not that you just get by and get into heaven, and now God, you enjoy all that God has for you. But God's will for you is that you walk in this life in all that He has for you, the fullness of this salvation. That we be saved by His life. Let's go over to verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that offense might abound. And what he's teaching there is the law came in the Old Testament that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. The purpose of that law was so that they could understand what sin was. Because you don't understand what sin is until somebody draws a line and says, this is what you can't do and this is what you must do. Isn't that right, parents? Isn't that right, parents? It's not fair to discipline your children if you haven't taught them what you expect. Don't discipline them out of anger. 
That's not discipline. That's anger. That's wrath. And it will produce resentment. But when you discipline them for their sake, for what's good for them, but to do that, you have got to tell them ahead of time what you expect. We had the rules on the refrigerator. We literally did. We had the basic rules of the house. And they were nice and simple because I found that if they obey the, the, a few of them, they'll obey the rest of them. And there was just, you know, basic, simple rules. There's one of the classrooms you go in over here. There's certain simple rules. They're on the wall. At least they used to be when I went in there. You know, don't hit. Don't pay, pay Don't talk. In class, don't hit in class, don't, pay, don't talk in class, pay attention to the teacher, those kind of rules. So we had simple rules so that if they broke one of them, I literally take them over and say, now do you know which rule you bought? So without rules being announced, then you don't know what sin is, even though you may be committing it. So the law came so that they would know what God expected. And the second purpose was so that they would understand they couldn't keep them. Say, wait, wait a minute, that's not make any sense. They couldn't keep them in their own strength, in their own ability. Because there's just something in our fallen nature that wants to do it ourselves. We want to do it ourselves. We want to get some credit for, for, for just, for, you know, for, 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 for getting ourselves there. We'll give God most of the credit, but we want to help. That's why it all goes through the cross. Even when Jesus went to the cross, he couldn't put himself on the cross. Ever think about that? The Bible says we're to take up our cross daily. Do you know you can't put yourself on a cross? I mean, you could nail your feet, but then what are you going to do? You surrender yourself. All right, let's go on, because there's some places I want to get to. Okay, oh, the law, that's what I was talking about. The law entered that offense might abound. What it meant was the law entered, came, so that we might be more aware of how we offended God. It didn't cause us to offend Him more. What it caused us to realize how much we do offend Him. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to an eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, God's grace is so abounding that it over, literally it means to superabound over sin. Remember years ago, after we first saved, we were visiting some family outside of Philadelphia. We, my, it was my father took us down to Atlantic City, which was very different than the Atlantic City I grew up near. Because it was the casinos where Anita walked, we walked in there, she says, oh my goodness, this place is abounding in sin. And the words out of my mouth was, yes, but where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. So when the enemy gets you looking at your abounding sin, understand this about God. His grace much more abounds. Praise God. You getting anything out of this? All right, just come along with me. It's his nature. We're looking at places where it says, much more, he abounds. Let's go now over, oh, this is, real, you, this is good. Let's go to Romans 8. Mm. We're getting into some of my favorite stuff in the Bible here. Oh, boy. I mean, Romans 8 is full of this. Let's, but we've got to go. Let's start in um, <clears throat> verse 28. 
We know all things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, that means who He knew ahead of time, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that He may be the firstborn among many brethren. Now let's stop on that a second. A couple things. The word predestined might throw you. The word predestined just means planned ahead of time for. We have one of our children and, 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 uh, and his wife and our daughter live here. But the rest of our children live either in Tennessee or in Texas. So when they're coming home, my wife predestines some things. She predestines what she's going to cook for them. She predestines some things we might do. In other words, she just plans ahead. Some of you are, have already predestined Thanksgiving. You planned ahead what you're going to serve. I hope you have. You planned ahead. That's, that's all predestined means. God planned ahead of time for. Now look at this. Remember, when Christ came to go to the cross, all of us were lost in our sin, eternally separated from God, with no, nothing we could do to bridge that gap. Nothing we could do. We were hopeless. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, we were without God and without hope in this world. No hope. Hopeless. But God came, sent His Son here to die on that cross to pay for your sins. Now, God could have stopped there and said, okay, and this is what most of the church thinks happened. Well, Jesus paid for my sins so I don't have to go to hell and I can go to heaven. That, if that's it, I'm on board. I'm not complaining. I'm, li- I'm right there in line. All right, I'm not complaining. But see, that's the image we have of God, that that's the least He had to do, and that would have been wonderful. But we're going to see here, He did something much more. Not only did Jesus come and shed His blood so that you don't have to go to hell and you can go to heaven, but look at what God, why God did this. For whom he foreknew, and earlier it says he foreknew, if you're saved, he foreknew you. He also predestined, planned ahead of time, to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he, the Son, that's Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he called, and whom he called, he justified, and whom he justified, he glorified. How many of you are saved? Well, you're saved because He called you. You didn't call Him, He called you. So these verses say if He called you, He justified you. That's what we've already talked about. He cleaned you, He he paid for your sin so that you could be righteous in His sight. But He did that, not just so you go to heaven, to qualify you so that you might become something more than just a saved sinner so that you could now be qualified to become his child. See, the reason he, 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 the reason he died and washed you in his blood was so that he could take your old nature out. And he took your old nature out so he could put your new, a new nature in. God always works on the positive side. 
If he does something negative, take something out it's so he can make room to put something in. If he asks you to give something, it's so he can make room for him to give something back. God never ends up on the negative side as long as we flow with him. So Jesus died on that cross so God could justify you, make you right in his sight. And, but he did that. See, that's where the church, most of the church stops there. But he did that so he could legally take your old nature out, which he talks about in Ezekiel and Isaiah, and put a new nature in. And that new nature is of him. He took his seed, just as he did in Mary's womb when the angel appeared to him. He did the same thing inside of you. He put his seed inside of you by the Spirit of God inside of you so that he could birth in you his own nature so that you could become his own child. He could have stopped at just justifying you. None of us came and asked to be his child. We just wouldn't want to go to hell. (laughs) But he didn't give you what you asked for. He did much more. That's why God doesn't leave you alone. Pesters you, works in you, prompts you convict you. Why? Because he's not going to leave you where you are. He has an image of where he wants to get you, which is much more than where you are, which is much stronger than where you are, which is much more like him. It is to change you into the image of Christ. Oh, I could never be that. Why? Because God said that's where he sees you. That's where he's taking you. Because he's much more than you can think. Remember when he took Abraham out and said, Abraham says, I just want a child. And God said, oh, let's not talk about child. I want to show you what I want to do. It's exceedingly beyond what you can ask or think. That's what God wants to do in your life. That's what God wants to do with you. Say, well, you don't understand. I struggle with this and I struggle with that. That's because you don't have the image of God as of you. You're a child of God facing that. That's the answer he gives in Romans chapter 7. Having come out of Romans chapter 5, we just read about where grace sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Chapter 6 starts out by saying, well, okay, if that's true, then let's just let sin have its way so that grace can abound all more. And Paul says, you don't even understand what we're talking about. Don't you understand that the way you got saved is you were baptized, that means immersed or joined into Christ, made one with him? So if you were joined into him and made one with him, then you were joined and made one in his death. And if you were joined in his death, you were joined in his burial, and you'll be joined in his resurrection to newness of life. In other words, you're joined to him. Why would you go sin? You've literally been made one with him, one spirit with him. It's not a figure of speech. It is who you are. You are a joint heir with Christ. Why would you want to go sin and have him sin? It's because you don't know who you are. We look at ourselves and what we do in terms of our, just ourselves separate from him. But you're not separate from him. The Bible says you've been fused together with Him. 
united with him, joined to him. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. In Christ means you've been joined. That means your identity is him. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, with him. Not for him, with him. Therefore, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, it gets better. It gets better. It always gets better. That's why all things work together. All right. Verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us. See, we, you know, it's, if I ask the question, is God for you? Oh yeah, God's for me. But he's just told you how God's for you. He's just told you what it means that God's for you. You and I, it says in chapter 2, we're dead in our sins and transgressions. But God, in order to satisfy the great and intense love that He has for you, verse 4, He made us alive together with Christ. And then He joined us to Christ, made us to be a child of God, a joint heir with Christ, it says earlier in chapter 8. He's made you into His own child, and now He's maturing you through the Holy Spirit so that you're going to act and look on the outside like who you belong to. And He said, if God's for you, look, if He's done all this, don't you think He's for you? We didn't ask for this. Most of us are just beginning to discover what He already did. This is not something he's going to do when you get your act straight. This is what he's already done when you came to Christ. So it's not because you've asked him. He just did it. Because he's much more than you can think or ask. So Paul's looking at all this and just wondering at this. Say, wow, if God's for us, look at the verse. Who can possibly be against us? When you go into work tomorrow to face whatever you're facing, go in with the scripture. I'm a child of God. Because he's for me. If he's for me, who? Because Paul's asking a question. Who is there in your life that can be against you. Oh, you people can line up against you, but what difference is it going to make when God is this much for you? See, he's not sitting in heaven looking down and says, yeah, when I think of Joe, I'm, yeah, I'm for him, I like him, he's okay, he's a nice guy. No! He's actively involved, paid with his son's life, first of all, just so he could clean you up, qualify you, just to qualify you so he could come and live inside of you, make you a temple of the Holy Spirit, come and live inside of you so that he could make you into his own child, his own nature, with his own genes inside of you. This is what the Bible says. This isn't my theology. If God's for you this much, 
Who can possibly be against you? Oh, now we get into my favorite scripture. Well, for for that. Yeah, no. He who spared not his own son. Listen to this. He was, in order to do this, he didn't spare his own son. If he didn't spare the most valuable thing he had, one he had, why do we think he will not also together with him freely? Freely. Freely means you don't have to talk him into it. Freely means you don't have to give him 14 reasons when you ask him. Freely means it doesn't going to cost you something. Freely give you all things. In other words, if he's got it, it's yours. We're looking at his heart. If he didn't, I've been healed on this scripture. Meditating on this scripture. Because I had a question. I don't know if God would heal me. And I got a hold of this scripture. I said, wait a minute. If he didn't spare his son, why would he hold healing back? God's not holding anything back. Well, how come I don't have it? Well, if God's not holding it back and you don't have it, the problem is most likely not on his end. Most of the time it's because we don't really believe. We don't know the difference between hope and faith. We're going to learn that on Wednesday nights. So you have to come Wednesday night to find out. (laughs) I got to go on. This is so good. Verse 33. Oh, this is even better. Who shall bring a charge? It's like God saying, looking out over you as child, looking around saying, all right, who's going to bring a charge? against the one I elected. See, you're elect. You're, you've been elected. You didn't choose him. John, he chose you. You've been chosen by him. You're a chosen one. You're a chosen one. And you didn't fool him. You didn't slip something by. So now he's discovering, oh, what a mistake we made with her. No, Hebrews chapter 4 says all things are are exposed to him. Everything is exposed. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he chose you. You're you're the elect of God. So God's looking down at you, looking down at the enemy, the accuser of the brethren, and the people that accuser wants to use and says, who? This is God asking the question. Who? Who? Come on. Who? Come on. Give, give me a shot at it. Come on. God's saying. Who? Come on. Try me out. Who? Which one of you can bring a charge against my child? Come on. Take a shot at him. Watch what happens. Who can bring a charge? Who? Who can bring a charge against God as elect? Now notice God, now he's going to show us who can. Who's qualified? Oh, there's two. He's going to show you. Right? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. So the first one who could bring a charge against you is God Himself. But He justified you. So He's not going to. All right? 
Who is he that condemns? It's, it's Christ Jesus who died. So the only other one who condemned you is Christ Jesus, but he's the one that died so God could justify you. So the only two who could legally bring a charge against you are the one who paid for your sins and the one who made you his child. So God's looking around and says, who else? It's kind of like Jesus with the woman caught in adultery. Because you see, there's, they're the only two that have never sinned. And so apparently the qualification to bring a charge against you is that they never sinned. Isn't that what, I never, I've never taught this before, isn't that what Jesus did that day? They bring this woman caught in the act of adultery, throw her down at his feet, because they don't care about, they just want to catch him. Oh, when they tried to catch him, they regretted it. He doodles in the sand a little bit, he says, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're not going to debate, and this is my loose translation of it. We're not going to debate whether she's guilty or not. He never talked about whether she was guilty or not. He says, let's talk about who's entitled to carry out the punishment. That's what we're going to talk about. So here's the qualification. Because under the old covenant, adultery was punished with stoning to death. So they all had rocks in their hands. He said, okay, you're exactly right. She's caught in the act of adultery. We're going to, she's, she's pleading guilty. So here's, here's, you're right. She's, she deserves to be stoned. And here's the qualification. Let he who's never committed sin throw the first stone. and he says woman where are your accusers she says I don't know he said then neither do I go and sin no more second chance who shall bring a charge who shall bring a charge rings out of heaven who shall bring a charge against my elect I won't because I justify them Jesus won't because he paid this with his life so I could justify them much more, much more, much more, much more. Oh, it gets better. Oh. <laughs> Not only that, it says, Christ who died, furthermore, he's risen. Not only that, he's sitting at the right hand of God making intercession for you. Why is he going to accuse you? He's your high priest. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long, accounted as sheep for the slaughter? Yet in all these things, say all these things. Say it again. All these things. Now we're talking about what you're going through right now. All these things you're going through right now. Look at this. We are. More than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors through him 
who loved us. I heard an example years ago of what it means to be more than a conqueror. And back in, in the days I heard this, the, the heavyweight fights were, were the big thing because we had big names like Muhammad Ali and something like that. It talks about the guy that wants to challenge the heavyweight champion. He goes through six months of rigorous training. I mean, he has to, can't eat certain things. He can't, you know, he's separated from his family. He's, you know, you've seen the Rocky movies. He just goes through all that stuff, you know. There's vigor, hitting meat and whatever it is they got to do, you know, and, and ro- the road, all this stuff. And he gets into the ring. Goes 15 brutal rounds with a champion. And then in the, at the end, he wins on points. They give him the belt, and they give him this check for $5 million. And he goes home. His wife opens the door, takes a look at him, gives him a kiss, and he hands her the check. (laughs) He's the conqueror. She's more than a conqueror. (laughs) Think about it. Jesus went through the discipline. Forty days in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. Went through the discipline. He endured all the suffering. The Bible says on that cross, He bore our sins, our sicknesses, our disease. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. He took it all upon Himself. He bore all the punishment for your sin, my sin, for sin. And then when He came to your doorbell someday, door, door someday and you opened the door and let Him in, He gave you a check that said everything you need and is done is paid for in full. You are more than a conqueror through Him who loves us. And we'll end with this. This is why Paul finished this, this by saying, For I am, verse 38, for I am persuaded. I am persuaded. Not I have a theological belief in this or a concept. I am persuaded. Paul went through some stuff. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing. This is not Paul's theology. It's the experience of his life. And we hope that we're going to make it. We hope we're going to get by. We hope that God's going to love us tomorrow. We hope that God's going to take care of us tomorrow. We hope, and if Satan can keep you at that, at that attitude towards God, then he will keep you in a corner. And your goal for your life will be to barely make it through. I hope I make it through, and I hope I get into heaven. That's where so much of the church has been. When the Bible says you're more than a conqueror. 
When Jesus says, the works that I do shall you do and greater works. And I shared Wednesday night with the Wednesday night, with the people here Wednesday night, that the Lord showed me we spend so much of our time trying to establish the foundation of our life with God, to make sure God's not mad at me, to make sure God loves me. And while we're working so hard on this basic foundation, we're not doing very much for Him. We receive this by faith. We're concerned whether God's mad at us. If God before... We just read it. Why would He be mad at you when He justified you? Why would Jesus be upset with you when He gave His life for you? Say, well, it's what I did since then, but He's still... He's interceding for you. For you. Not for you to get it. For you, on your behalf. He's your advocate, it says in 1 John chapter 1. He's your attorney. He's your advocate before the Father to plead your case. And you know what his argument is? I wish I could have done this in court. His argument is simply the scars on his hands. and It's the cross. His argument on you is it's been paid. I know that, but it's been paid. Satan comes to accuse us. I know that's all true, but it's been paid. But it's been paid. I know that, but it's been paid. It's been paid. It's been paid. It's been paid. We need to settle. It's been paid. And now begin to go on and do what God's called us to do with full assurance of confidence, it says in Hebrews 9, having our hearts sprinkled from a consciousness of evil about ourselves, bad self-image so that we can walk on as who we are, sons and daughters of the living God who is for us. And He is much more for you than you can begin to imagine. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. Your Word that opens the eyes of our understanding that we see the hope of Your calling for our life that is in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that is at work in us. And we pray, Lord Father, as we go into this week, that you will take the words that we've heard today, the scriptures that we've seen, and you'll make them come alive to us, not just when we're gathered here together, but tomorrow morning when we wake up and may not feel as excited as we feel right now. Tomorrow when we go to work and have to face that boss or face that situation that's been so difficult. Bring these back to our remembrance then. Help us to realize that all these things are just as true then as they are right now, sitting here in this wonderful atmosphere. Teach us how to take the truth of your word about us and about what you want to do through us out into this lost and dying world that we may truly become fishers of men as you've called us to be. We thank you for the grace to do that in Jesus' name. Thank you.